0: Well, if you've got a Bible, open up to Galatians 6. Galatians 6. We've been working through the letter of Paul to the Galatians for several months now. So if you're, if you're newer here, haven't been around too much, um, that's our practice here is that we'll, we'll pick a book in the Bible and then we'll just preach through it. So I've been working through Galatians and two of the uh, other pastors have been working through 1 Samuel. So we'll finish up Galatians this morning. And then, uh, and then I'll preach a psalm next week and then a psalm after that. So we'll kind of use those psalms to break up the preaching series. And then we'll have another sermon on 1 Samuel. And then uh, we'll start uh, Zechariah, the Old Testament prophet Zechariah, and work our way through that, Lord willing. But this morning, we, we come to close up uh, preaching through the book of Galatians. We're looking at verses 11 through 18 in particular. And um, if you've got a worship guide, there's a handout on the back, or a, an outline, rather, on the back. It's got the main points there, if that's helpful for you to keep an eye on as, uh, as we move along. Galatians 6, through 18. Uh, the, the letters in the New Testament, so, you know, you've got the Gospels and Acts, and then you've got these letters. Those are called epistles. That's all I mean, is it's just a letter. Well, those letters were written for particular purposes. So if you've been a believer for a while and read the Bible, you you know this. So the way they usually came about, there was usually an issue or a few significant issues in a particular local church in the first century or a group of churches, maybe in, in an entire region. And then one of the apostles, those were those men chosen by Jesus to produce the New Testament. Those were the group of folks where Jesus promised, my spirit's gonna come to you and work in a unique way to produce my word. So the Old Testament is God's word. Well, this is how we know the New Testament is God's word because Jesus tells us the Spirit would produce God's word through these men. So one of those apostles then is led by the Holy Spirit to write a letter to that church or that group of churches dealing mainly with that, that particular issue. Okay, so let's remind ourselves, we're here at the end of Galatians. Let's remind ourselves what the specific issue is that Paul wrote the letter of Galatians to address to the churches in this region of Galatia. Flip back to chapter one, look at verse six and following. So this is chapter one, verse six, Paul sets up the whole letter. This is the purpose of the letter. This is the issue he's dealing with Galatians one, verse six and following. Paul says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ, talking about the Lord, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel not that there is another one but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of christ but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you let him be accursed as we've said before so now i say again if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received let him be accursed so that's the issue that's why paul wrote this letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So there were false teachers around the Galatian churches and they were preaching a false gospel. So they they were preaching a gospel We, we learned throughout the letter. What they were saying was that forgiveness of sins, a relationship with the Lord, justification in God's eyes, so kind of that whole realm of salvation, being saved, they said, yes, you have to trust in Jesus for those things to happen, but that's not quite enough. It's faith in Christ plus some good works, faith in Christ plus some obedience. You have to do these extra things along with trusting in Jesus, and that's what together works to save you, to have your sins covered, to get an innocent verdict from God, what, what's called justification. So it's faith plus works, these false teachers were saying. And remember, the, the main good work these false teachers were saying was required was to have the male members of your household get circumcised. So they were pointing back to the Old Testament law for Israel. And there were a couple other things they were saying you needed to do, but that was kind of the main thing. We see that issue throughout the letter to the Galatians. But see, Paul's made it so clear, that's a false gospel. To say that salvation comes through faith in Christ plus anything else is a false gospel. And Paul's made it really clear. The person who believes that false gospel, they will be cut off from the benefits of Christ. They won't end up with salvation. Their sins won't be covered. That's what he says plainly in chapter 5, verse 2. And there Paul says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, so if you go along with this thinking, faith plus works, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Okay. So that's a a pretty significant problem. So what he's saying is, Hey, if you listen to these false teachers, if you believe what they say, you'll be cut off from Jesus. You won't be saved you won't have your sins covered. So that's why Paul wrote this letter. We can understand why he wrote the letter. That's serious business. Nothing more serious in the universe. And that's why he wrote this letter. And throughout the course of the argument in Galatians, he's regularly making two different comparisons. We've seen this all throughout. So primarily, this is what he does most of the time, he compares the one true gospel to that fake knockoff gospel. And he shows why the one true gospel is, is so much better. But to a lesser degree, he compares the character of a true gospel preacher to the character of a fake gospel preacher. We get some of that in chapter 1. Well, that's what Paul comes back to again here at the end of this letter. So with that in mind, hear the word of the Lord. Galatians 6, 11 through 18. Paul says, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, Percy, uh, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble for I bear on my body, the marks of Jesus, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit brothers. Amen. Okay. So the question is what does a preacher of the one true saving gospel look like? That's what this passage tells us. What's Paul say that kind of preacher looks like? Well, he gives us, four characteristics that we see here in the text. And these are written there on the back of the worship guide. So first, a true gospel preacher, he's not focused on his reputation. Second, he's not focused on his comfort in this world. Third, his life fits with his teaching. And finally, his message actually transforms sinners. So so let's look now at these four categories, and then we'll end on the call for us as believers to evaluate those who claim to be gospel preachers based on these four character qualities. So, first characteristic. The true gospel preacher is not focused on his reputation. Look at how Paul begins the first section, uh, or the, the final section, rather, of Galatians. Look at verse 11. He says, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Now you can probably draw what he's getting at there, but let's pause real quick and, and understand something about the context here. So the first century in the near east where Paul's writing from, somebody who sent a lot of letters, they usually had a secretary or a scribe who they would dictate to. And then that person is the one that's that's sending out that letter that's actually writing it by hand. But see here at the end of Galatians, Paul takes the quill himself. So we understand there's been a scribe who's been writing this letter at the end, Paul takes the quill, and then he writes this last section himself with his own hand. And and you can imagine, but what he's doing through that, he's conveying to the Galatian Christians the force of what he's been telling them. It's almost like if he's highlighting it and underlining it and putting it in italics. He's writing it with his own hand. We saw kind of the same sort of spirit of that back in chapter 4, verse 19, when Paul says, my little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone for I am perplexed about you." So Paul's like a mother who wants to protect his, his children. He he's pulling out all the stops to help these young, young Christians understand how deathly important this situation is of these false teachers and of turning from what it is that they're saying. Verse 11 in our passage, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Okay, so he's, he's setting them up. You need to pay attention. This is so serious, Paul's saying. But, but after establishing his, his passion for them to understand this, he makes our first point, verse 12. He says, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. Okay, so he kind of pulls the curtain back on the motives of these false teachers. And one motivation for what they were teaching was their own reputation. As Paul says here, they wanted to make a good showing in the flesh. So in other words, they wanted to have recognition from other people. They they wanted to have a good reputation among others. And and one way to do that was by them promoting circumcision. So remember, we saw this back in chapter 2, verse 11. There's this situation that Paul recounts with the apostle Peter, we'll just sum it up. But in chapter two, he makes clear that there had been a group of Jews that had come up to the Galatian region from Jerusalem. And one thing that this group of Jews was saying was, hey, if there are non-Jewish people who become Christians, to really be a Christian, you've gotta become Jewish. That's kind of the main idea. And that's what the false teachers had been saying in a way. Yeah, faith in Christ is great, but you also basically have to become Jewish. You have to get circumcised. You have to keep the Sabbath. You have to keep these Old Testament food laws, all those sorts of things. Well, there was a group from Jerusalem, which was a a church that had a lot of clout at that point. So there's a group that comes and is kind of arguing for that. And you might remember, but even Peter gets tripped up by this group. So as they're sort of forcefully trying to say, no, non-Jews really have to become Jewish in order to be Christians, Peter gets kind of caught up in that false thinking, and you remember he quits eating with non-Jews because of this group of people. Well, Paul makes it clear in our passage that it's, it's outside pressure like that that was causing these false teachers to say you had to be circumcised. So it wasn't like they just got this idea from the text. No, they're responding to outward pressure. They, they wanna have a reputation that other people are pleased with. Groups like came up from Jerusalem, they want groups like that to be pleased with them and their teaching. So in other words, they're focused on their reputation among others. Verse 12, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. But see, a real gospel preacher isn't focused on his reputation. Look at Paul's example, verse 14 in our passage. He says, "...but far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world." So see, Paul is not interested in making a good showing in the flesh, the way the false teachers were. He's actually not interested in what people think about him at all. That's probably what the phrase is getting at when he says, the world has been crucified to me. It looks like what he's saying is the world doesn't have influence over me any longer. So their opinion of me is basically dead to me. The world's opinion of Paul wasn't going to guide him. It wasn't going to direct the way he should go the way one new Testament scholar says that he, he says the Christian is no longer beholden to this world. So the world, their opinions are, are supposed to be crucified to us, and that's good news for us. It's, it's, it's such a freeing truth, if, if we'll get it, it's such a freeing truth to consider that you don't have to impress the world any longer, and I don't have to try to impress the world any longer. In the words of verse 12, you no longer have to worry about making a good showing in the flesh. As a Christian, you don't have to please people. Isn't that good news? That's not something that we have to do. That that requirement in our sinful nature has been broken by the cross of Christ. So just like Paul, you don't have to worry about your reputation any longer. Verse 14. But far be it from me to boast. And listen, we, we understand from Paul's life, he certainly could have bragged. He could have been interested, and he could have made a good case for why other people should be impressed with him. He could have worked for his own reputation. There were, there were legitimately impressive things about Paul's life and, and his ministry, but he never boasted in himself when it came to those things. And the reason why is because he realized in part where those things came from, and they weren't from inside himself. Now all all the good things in Paul came from the Lord, by way of the cross of Christ and the Holy Spirit inside of him. Like Paul told us back in chapter five, verse 16 through 26, all the good fruit in the life of the Christian is fruit from the Holy Spirit. So we can't boast in any of it anyway. It's all from the Lord. We saw the exact same thing in the sermon last week in 1 Samuel. So in 1 Samuel 11, every good thing Saul is doing is only because of the holy spirit in him so it's the same thing with us as as christians and paul knew the only reason he even had the holy spirit the only reason he was a christian is because god came after him it's not that paul was looking for the lord he wasn't same way that none of us were looking for the lord no the lord came after paul listen how he says it in chapter 1 verse 15. he says but when he who had set me apart before i was born and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me. So he acknowledges there, God chose Paul before the foundation of the world. And then he affects that call in real time, in real life, by revealing Jesus to him. And the thing is, if you're here and you're a Christian, God did the exact same thing with you. So the reason you're a Christian the reason you have the Holy Spirit, it's not that you were smarter than your non-Christian neighbor or more humble or that your parents did something for you that, that your non-Christian neighbor's parents didn't do for him or her. No, ultimately, the reason you're a believer is because the Lord came and got you. In his grace, he came and opened your eyes and brought you to himself through Christ. So, so you and I can't boast in ourselves at all. But see, there is something that Paul was constantly bragging about. It wasn't himself. He was constantly bragging about the cross. He was always boasting about the gospel of Christ. Verse 14, but far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Okay, so, so by way of application, do you brag about the gospel that's something we're supposed to do we don't boast in ourselves but we are supposed to boast in the gospel so do you brag about the gospel i think for a lot of us it's pretty easy to brag about the lord maybe in terms of his care for us with material things in particular so i think probably for most of us if we've been sick let's say our non-christian neighbor knows we've been sick and then we get well And the neighbor says, oh, it's great news that you're well. I think a lot of us, it's pretty easy to say, yeah, praise the Lord. The Lord's the one that did that work, right? I think for most of us, it's pretty easy to brag about the Lord in that way. I think what what comes less naturally and what maybe we do less often is to brag about the gospel. The thing that that our non-Christian neighbor doesn't really even think is necessary, which is for our sins to be covered. How often do we brag about that? Because that's the real thing. Praise God when he gives us good health, when he answers prayer requests in certain ways, right? But no, the, the best thing the Lord has given to us, the best work that he's done, the thing that's most boastworthy, is Christ dying on the cross, paying for our sins. So that's a good question for us, isn't it? How often, just think about it this past week, how often did I brag about the cross? You know, how often as you interacted with non-believers, were you at least looking for an opportunity to brag about the gospel? How often with your Christian spouse, where it should be pretty easy, how often did you brag about the gospel? Or with your kids or other family members or, or fellow church members? We, we want to do that often. We want to point to the cross. We should care nothing about our, our own reputation, but, but we should care a lot about the reputation of the gospel. In fact, one summary of the reason God leaves us in this life after we become Christians I don't know how often you think about this, but God could have said, okay, once somebody trusts in Christ, I'll just pull them on up to heaven, right? He could have done it that way. Why didn't he do it that way? Our sins have been forgiven. We have a relationship with the Lord. Why not just take us straight to him? Well, one way to sum that up is what we're supposed to be doing here on this earth, in this life, which is making Jesus more famous. That's our job. That's the the start and the finish of it. That's what we're supposed to do, make Jesus more famous famous and the spirit empowers us to do that while not caring what we look like to other people paul sets out the dichotomy really clearly all the way back at the beginning of the letter chapter 1 verse 10 this is such a good verse for us to pray about chapter 1 verse 10 he says for now am i seeking the approval of man or of god isn't that a good question to ask yourself we could ask ourselves that with every situation in life every time we interact with somebody every day at work, every time there's a sin in front of us and we're tempted to step into it. All those situations we can always ask ourselves, am I now seeking the approval of man or seeking the approval of God? What's what's driving my life? What's driving those interactions? So so all that to say, Paul wasn't concerned a bit with his reputation in the world. He, He just wanted the cross to be magnified and that's what a true gospel preacher will do. And see, the reason it's so important to have this quality in a preacher is because the preacher who's really concerned with his reputation will inevitably tailor his message to be a message that's more popular, that's more palatable with with more people, right? If a preacher is really concerned with his reputation, he'll shy away from preaching certain passages that are hard or making certain application that's, that's hard for people to hear. He'll worry about the fallout. But God's people need preachers who won't do that. We need preachers who who will bring God's word to God's people regardless of how popular the message will be. So that's something that if you're a member of the church, you you can pray for. Pray for the elders here, that we would never be concerned with our reputation, that we wouldn't worry about what the world thinks about us, but we would just wanna be faithful ministers of the saving gospel and just preach the word as it comes. It's crucial that the gospel preacher isn't focused on his own reputation, but these peddlers of this false gospel, they they were. Verse 12, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. But the second quality we see here, a gospel preacher also isn't focused on his comfort in this world. It's the second thing Paul points out. Again, for contrast, look at the false gospel preachers. Verse 12, It's those who wanna make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So just like we mentioned a minute ago, there's groups of Jews that were threatening some sort of persecution, even if it's just kind of social alienation. They were forcing that on people to try to get them to say that circumcision was required to become a Christian. That non-Jews had to become Jews. So what Paul says, part of the reason these false teachers were calling for circumcision, it wasn't just to have a good reputation. It was also to avoid persecution. Verse 12, it's those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So false teachers, they tailored their message in order to have a comfortable life. But look at the stark contrast between false teachers and Paul on this point. Look down at verse 17. Paul says, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. What he's talking about there is the persecution that he had faced in his ministry. And and in particular, he's talking about the physical persecution. Paul had literal marks on his body because he preached the gospel message that people didn't like. And so they physically persecuted him for it. So you might remember there's a story in Acts 14. You remember this, where Paul, they stone Paul. They throw big rocks at him until he's unconscious. And then they throw some more big rocks until they think he's dead. And then they drag him out of the city and they leave him there. That happens in Acts 14 in a city called Lystra. That's one of the cities he's writing this letter to. That's in the region of Galatia. So the people he's writing to would almost certainly be be familiar with this story and the kinds of persecution that Paul had faced. Paul was not focused on his comfort in the world, was he? He had an extremely uncomfortable life. He wasn't focused on comfort in this world. And, And see, as Christians, we shouldn't be either. And here's the thing, we would like for what I'm about to say to be not true. It's true, the Lord knows what he's doing, so it's good for us, but it is true. It's not that there is one kind of Christian life where there is no persecution. And then there's kind of option B, where there's a version of the Christian life where there is persecution, no. The Bible makes it really clear there's only one version of the Christian life and it comes with persecution. It's part of it, it comes standard. Every faithful Christian, their life will bring with it some persecution. Let me read you a few verses to make that case. Here's what Jesus tells his followers, John 15, verse 20. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Here's what the Holy Spirit says in 2 Timothy 3:12. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Or 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 4. The world will malign you. So brothers and sisters, if we follow Jesus faithfully, we will meet persecution. Period paragraph. It will happen. Now, it might not rise to the level of physical persecution, but if we're living the faithful Christian life in the culture of the world, if we're speaking about the gospel with non-believers, then you're at least going to experience some sort of of social alienation. You've already experienced that as a Christian, right? People thinking that you're weird or ignorant and backward or, or close-minded or even hateful. Now, it's real easy for us as individuals, some of us more than others. It's easy to think, Oh no, no, no. I can package this in a way where people will understand and they'll like it. I can be winsome enough. I can be gracious enough, charming enough. I can be loving enough. I can ensure that even though they might not like my message, they'll still be pleased with me. As I say that, if you're honest, don't you think that sometimes? I think that sometimes. I've gone through the Christian life with that attitude oftentimes when I'm talking with non-believers where I think, oh, they might not like any other Christian they've ever met, but they'll like me. I'll let them see this is intellectually, you know, uh, at least an option that it's not closed-minded, that it makes sense, that as a Christian, I'm still loving enough. We can think that way, but, but the truth is we can't do that. That's a foolish thing to think, it's, it's not true. And let me give you exhibit A for why that's not true. Jesus was the most loving and winsome person in the history of the world. They murdered him, isn't that something? He was far more smart far more charming, and perfectly loving. He never did anything for his own benefit. He always did everything perfectly for the person standing in front of them. He loved the person standing in front of him. He loved all of them perfectly all the time. They made up charges so they could kill him. So this is just a fiction that we can think we can avoid persecution. We can't. Persecution will come so the question for us what will you do when you're faced with persecution in particular when it's there in front of you and you get to make the decision am i going to be faithful to the lord and get persecution or will i be unfaithful in this instant and preserve myself from that persecution what will you do what will you do when your employer asks you to do something that the lord commands you not to do employers write our paychecks, right? That's significant. What will you do when when your kid's involved in an activity they love, but that activity all of a sudden is going to require some kind of disobedience to the Lord, and you're just stacking up in your head the pros and the cons, what you have to lose, in this world at least, by going with faithfulness. What will you do when you're faced with losing a friendship because of your commitment to Jesus? Now, one bit of good news, you can think about those things and you can think, what would I do? You know, I feel like I would fail. Well, one thing we have to remember, Christians have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives us what we need when we need it. So as a Christian, any situation where faithfulness to Jesus is in front of you and there's a steep consequence on the other side and you think I could never do it, The Holy Spirit will work in you. He will give you what you need when you need it. So we can be thankful for that. But the scriptures also do call us to resolve now to be faithful to Jesus then. We are called to think ahead and understand there could be a time where I'm called on to be faithful to Jesus even when it will cost me a lot and we're supposed to resolve now to do that. And that's a big part of why as Christians we need membership in a local church. Individual Christians, we, we need the attention and commitment of fellow believers to be constantly reminding us to hold on to Jesus, despite the circumstances, despite the consequences. We need that. Way Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it? He was a pastor in Germany. You may have heard about Bonhoeffer. So he said it this way. He said, the word of Christ in the mouth of my brother is oftentimes stronger than the word of Christ in my own heart. What he meant by that was, I'm built up in my faith in a unique kind of way when my brothers and sisters are speaking to me the truth of the gospel. We need one another to do that, to build us up in our faith in Christ. Listen to the way we're told it in Hebrews 10, verse 23. They were told, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. So he's saying, hold on to Christ, no matter what it costs you in this life, if you have to lose your job, If you lose a friendship, if there's social alienation, hold on to Christ. But this is what's interesting. Listen to what he says in the next breath. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the church, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we need one another to help us hold on to Christ without wavering, even when our comfort in this world is on the line. Well, the false teachers were were clearly tailoring their message to avoid persecution and to gain comfort in this world which really does show off the weak nature of of their false gospel but the true gospel teacher as we see in paul's example doesn't do that he's not interested in his own comfort in this world okay third characteristic of a gospel preacher his life fits with his teaching his life fits with his teaching look at what paul says about the false teachers again verse 12. He says, it's those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. Okay, so these false teachers, remember, their big call was for non-Jews to live the Jewish life, to become Jewish and, and obey the law. But here's the thing. The false teachers themselves weren't obeying the law. They were hypocritical on that front. It's just like the charge Jesus made against the Pharisees in Matthew 23, which was part of our congregational reading. Matthew 23 verse 2, Jesus says, the scribes and the Pharisees preach, but they do not practice. So they're hypocrites. Later he says, within they are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Well, the false teachers around Glacier were the same way. Their life didn't fit with their teaching. Now, now, to a degree, that's inevitable for any human teacher, right? Because we're all sinners. So our life will never perfectly match up with the doctrine in Scripture, with the commands of Scripture, because no human can perfectly obey the law. Flip back over to chapter 3, verse 10. It's a section where Paul really points this out to us. Chapter 3, verse 10, he says, For all who rely on the works of the law for our justification for our salvation, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Okay, so, so remember Paul's logic here. Everyone who's relying on their own goodness in this life to be saved, those are the ones who, who are relying on the law. So I can, yeah, I can fulfill God's commands enough in order to be saved. Well, everybody in that category, Paul says, is under a curse. None of them's gonna end up being saved if they persist in that kind of thinking. Why? Well, it's because no human can obey the law perfectly. Paul says no one can abide by all the things written in the book of the law, talking about the scriptures. So, so if a sinner is looking to justify himself, he'll never end up justified because no sinner can be perfect. So the false teachers, they, they weren't unusual in that. They, they were sinners, but Paul was a sinner too, just like all of us are sinners. And if you're here and you're not a christian or you don't know what you think about jesus this is so important for you to understand so if you know that there's a god who created you and if you understand that when you die you're gonna have to stand before that god and sort of give an account then you're you're certainly concerned or you should be concerned with what you need to do during this life in order to get a good evaluation from the lord on the day of judgment okay But if you're with me with all that if you're a non-believer and and you'd sign off on everything i just said yes i know i have a creator it makes sense i'll stand before that creator and give an account you know on the day that i die and so i it's important that in this life i do things a way that will please him enough well the thing you need to understand is what paul just told us the teaching of the bible says that you can never be good enough not to get a verdict of innocent from the lord not to be justified No mere human can ever be good enough because good enough for God is someone who obeys God. And like we've seen, we've all been disobedient. Every mere human is is a sinner. To go back to the words of chapter 3, verse 10, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So as long as you're relying on your own performance in this life, you're under a curse. You're headed for judgment. But praise God, there is one way to get out from under that judgment, and it's by letting Jesus bear the penalty of that judgment on himself. That's what the gospel is. The good news of the gospel is that we can, not by working hard, but by simply trusting in Jesus, let him work hard on our behalf, where his perfect life was sacrificed on the cross to pay for the sins of everybody that would ever trust in him. So our call for you if you're here and you're not a Christian, don't know what you think about Jesus, our our call to you is to believe that good news, to come to Jesus, to trust in him, to get out from under the consequence of your sin by letting Jesus pay for those sins on the cross on your behalf. If you're willing to consider that message, come talk to me after the service or send me an email. My email address is on the back of the worship guide at the bottom or grab a member of this church, grab a pastor in this church and, and talk to us about the gospel. But see, here's the difference between Paul and and these false teachers. Paul knew he could never have a perfect life. Paul knew he was a sinner. And so his only hope of salvation was for Jesus to achieve that salvation for him and him to take hold of that salvation by faith alone in Christ alone, apart from works. So see, Paul's sinfulness fit perfectly with his gospel message. And, And this should be encouraging news for us as Christians. There's a way in which, so we hear about hypocrisy in the church a lot, and there's a way in which, as Christians, when we sin, that's hypocritical, right? We're Christ followers, so whenever Jesus is going one direction and we purposefully choose to go the other direction, well, yeah, we're not following Christ in that moment, right? So we are hypocrites in that way, but but we also have to remember that the message of the gospel is dependent on the fact that we're sinners. so our life would also not fit our message, if all of a sudden we were perfect in this life. That doesn't fit the message of the gospel either. So in a way, the fact that you're a sinner is not hypocritical. That doesn't contradict the gospel message. No, in fact, the fact that you're a sinner and I'm a sinner fits the gospel like a hand in a glove. Because that's the whole point of the gospel, is it's necessary because we're sinners. We always want to remember that, especially when we talk about the gospel. We, as Christians, we, we never want to talk like, if everybody would simply obey the Ten Commandments in our nation, then it'd be great, and everybody would be fine with the Lord, and He'd be happy with us. We don't want to give off that message. That's not true. No, sinners are sinners, and, and the only way for that sin to be covered is through the cross of Christ. The gospel isn't for the righteous. It's, it's for sinners. But see, the message of the false teachers was that as sinners, we can operate the law enough, we can be obedient enough to be justified. And that's just not the case. It's the same message that that the Roman Catholic uh, priest preaches when, when he says a Christian's right standing in God's eyes is secured in part through faith in Christ, but also through the entire life lived, a life of love, and that that's part of what justifies you Or it's it's part of the message that the the Christian church denomination pastor preaches when he says a Christian's right standing in God's eyes is secured in part through faith in Christ, but also through baptism. We understand that that's not the real gospel. That's what these false teachers were saying, that it's faith in Christ plus some works. But see, Paul tells us if you want to rely on the law for your salvation, you have to operate it perfectly. You have to be perfectly obedient. Nobody can do that. And so the message of these false teachers didn't fit with even what they were saying. Verse 13, for even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. So they were hypocrites, but a true gospel preacher's life fits with his message. Well, here's the final characteristic of a true gospel preacher, and it's the most important. His message actually transforms sinners. His message actually transforms sinners. Look at verse 15. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Now, Paul's not saying that circumcision is bad or that uncircumcision is good. He's not saying that. In fact, in in Acts 16, Paul has a ministry associate named Timothy, writes two letters to Timothy in the New Testament. He has Timothy get circumcised because they're going to go minister to the Jews, and Timothy's mom was a Jew. So Paul knew in terms of ministry to Jews, it'll be helpful if you walk through with that custom from the Old Testament law. So it's, so it's not a problem for a believer to, to be circumcised. But Paul knew that circumcision doesn't affect a sinner's standing before the Lord. It doesn't help to cover his sins. That's part of what he means when he says, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor Uncircumcision. Circumcision doesn't help someone get an innocent verdict from God. And uncircumcision doesn't help someone get that verdict. Only faith in Christ alone gets that verdict. But, but there's something else that circumcision doesn't do. Just like any obedience in the law, it can't transform someone's life. That's what Paul's getting at in verse 15 when he uses the term a new creation. He's talking about the new life that God gives to the Christian when we're made a new creation. Look at the way he describes it over in chapter 5, verse 6. He says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. So that's the exact same phrase, right, that we see in verse 15. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Okay, so those are synonyms. New creation equals faith working through love. So he's talking about when somebody believes the gospel and they're made a Christian, and that person is given a new kind of life where their faith in Christ produces love. And that's part of the good news of Christianity. So it's not just that God covers our sins. It's not just that your record was expunged, but then he kind of leaves you alone. No, God's too good for that. He covers our sins, but then he transforms us. That's what he's doing even now with, with our Christian lives. To use the theological language the church has used historically, he sanctifies us, he makes us holier. But see that new life, it, it doesn't originate from our obedience to God's commands. It's not that you had to be obedient enough and then God gives you new life. No, that, that idea is completely nonsensical. Like we're talking taught in uh, Ephesians 2, before you had new life, you were spiritually dead. We know a dead person can't bring themselves back to life. No, it's like Jesus teaches Nicodemus in John 3. It's the Holy Spirit that has to give someone new birth. Or the way Paul said in Galatians 5, it's the Holy Spirit that has to produce fruit in the Christian life. And how, how does one get the Holy Spirit? Well, it's not by trying to obey God's commands. We saw that back in chapter 3, verse 21. And there Paul says, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. What Paul just said is there's there's no law. There's no obedience to a set of commands that can give life. No, like chapter 3, verse 2 says, we, we don't get the spirit through works of the law, but by hearing with faith. So the false teachers around Galatia, they were saying that justification... And spiritual life came, at least in part, by way of the law. That's what every other religion says, too. That's what every knockoff version of Christianity says. But those fake gospels can't transform anybody. It's only the one true gospel that Paul preached, the one true gospel of salvation through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from works. That's the only message that produces new life. And it's a, it's a great reminder, right? We're regularly reminded that the real gospel is real when we see growth in ourselves as Christians. As we grow in holiness, as we grow in love for others and for God, that's evidence the gospel really is true. So you can just look back to your life as a non-Christian if, if you can remember that and compare that life to your life now. Look at how different it is. That's because you believed in the one true gospel, and that gospel produces life, it's transformative. Verse 15, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. So the true gospel preacher's message actually transforms sinners. Okay, so so as we close, what do we do with these qualifications of a gospel preacher? Why did Paul tell them this? Why does he close the letter out with this? Might seem kind of odd. You know, he sums up this entire argument throughout Galatians, makes this argument about how justification comes through faith alone and Christ alone apart from works. Why does he circle back around and talk about the qualifications for a gospel preacher? Well, the, the application here, we're supposed to evaluate those who claim to be gospel preachers. So that's the final thing we we'll are look at. That's what we're supposed to do with all this. We're supposed to evaluate, take these qualifications and evaluate those who claim to be gospel preachers. Look at verse 16. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God." So, so as Paul wraps up the letter, he's, he's right back where he started, evaluate the gospel that's preached by these religious teachers. And that's what that kind of evaluation. That's what he means when, when he says peace and mercy be upon them. The the one who is on the Lord's side is the one who, who Paul can say, they have peace and mercy. But, but we, we don't make that declaration about the enemy of the Lord. Like Paul says here in verse 16, we, we only consider God's peace and mercy to be on the one who walks by this rule. In other words, the preacher who God approves, the one who has God's peace and mercy, is the one who's characterized by, by what we've just seen. The one who's not focused on his reputation or his comfort in this world. The, the one whose life fits with his message because his message is the message of the gospel that transforms sinners. So when you've got someone in front of you who's claiming to be a preacher of the gospel, evaluate. And this isn't something Paul invents here. No, Israel was called to evaluate their religious teachers and prophets from the very beginning of the nation. So in Deuteronomy 13, the Lord gives guidelines. Hey, Israel, this is how you'll know a true prophet from a false prophet. He wants them to evaluate. We heard it from the Old Testament reading from Ezekiel how God makes it clear. Hey, the prophets that are talking to you guys, they're not real prophets. God's teaching them to evaluate. Jesus warns his disciples about false teachers in Matthew 23, which we've already heard from. And this is what he says in Matthew 7, 15. He says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. So again, he's saying, evaluate Bible teachers be sure that they're the real deal or like Paul says again at the very beginning of the letter chapter 1 verse 8 he says even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you let him be accursed so God wants the Christian to evaluate the teacher who's claiming to preach the Bible So back to our passage verse 16 he's telling us to offer peace and mercy to a certain kind of teacher and it's the one who at the beginning of verse 16 he says walks by this rule so evaluate first for this church evaluate your own preachers so the elders of this church we count on the brothers and sisters sitting here in this membership who have the holy spirit to be looking at your bibles And being sure that what we're saying fits with what the bible says we're counting on you guys to do that and and that if we ever seem to slip into unfaithfulness in the area of teaching that you'll call us on it we're relying on that in this church we count on you guys to be like the bereans in acts chapter 17 you remember them who have the scriptures open and they're evaluating what they're hearing to be sure it's biblical We say it this way in our church covenant that we've all signed up for in the membership. We say, we will work together for the continuance of a faithful evangelical ministry in this church as we, all of us, sustain its worship, ordinances, discipleship, discipline, and doctrines. So if you're a member at this church, take that responsibility seriously. Point it out if one of the teachers here looks to be focused on his reputation or his comfort in this world, Or one of the elders has a life that more and more doesn't seem to be lining up with his message. And and most important, that the message we're preaching is the one true gospel. The message that actually transforms sinners. But also evaluate Bible teachers you come in contact with outside the walls of this church. It's not only that you're supposed to evaluate your own elders. No, any teaching that somebody says, this is the Bible that you come in contact with, you're supposed to evaluate those preachers as well. So when you're considering whether to listen to a sermon broadcast on the radio or or a podcast or read a particular book, ask yourself the question, is this preacher, is this teacher proclaiming the one true gospel of Jesus Christ, as it's been to explain uh, explain to us in the book of Galatians? Is, Is he proclaiming the gospel that says, justification and forgiveness of sins comes by way of faith alone in Christ alone, apart from works? Evaluate the the preacher by these kinds of standards. Out of love, when when your sibling or your adult child is looking for a church and considering joining a church, take an interest in seeing if the preachers of that church preach the one true gospel. Justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Because as as the entire letter of Galatians has shown us, a a true gospel is worth preserving. We saw in chapter one, A distortion of the gospel is is a desertion of the gospel and, and a desertion of the gospel is a desertion of God and salvation. So there's nothing more important in this life than distinguishing the one true gospel from a fake gospel. And that task brings with it the need to evaluate gospel preachers. Look at the note Paul ends on, verse 18. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. So the the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ has been the message of Galatians, and it must be the message of the gospel preacher. Paul says, see with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. It's those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those that they may, uh, even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. And Father, we're so thankful that you've revealed the gospel message to us. We're thankful, Father, that it's not a dead letter. It gets inside us, and it transforms us. We've seen that in this church. Father, those of us who are Christians, we have new life. We've become new creations, Father. Not not entirely apart from sin. We continue to sin. But we have new life because of this good news of the gospel. Father, we pray that at this church we would always exclusively preach this one true gospel, that the way we're made right with you, the way we're given a relationship with you, is through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from any works. We're so thankful for your grace to us in the gospel of Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.